Late summer, it's time to get the bulls ready for the fall breeding season. There were 25 breeding bulls housed together in a pasture since they had been working in the spring, and at their routine breeding soundness exam, prior to placement with the fall herd, only half of them passed the breeding soundness exam, and many of them had poor semen quality. What happened? We'll find out today on Bovine Science with BCI, Talks Talk, and we've got Dr. Scott Fritz with us today, who's a toxicologist here at the Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Brad. So this is an interesting case because some of these bulls who had previously been successful, they're housed together, and then all of a sudden we've got bulls that, that aren't passing the, the BSE, and we had a big chunk of them that failed what are, some, what are some of the things that, that we start to think about? And we always start these off with, what are some differentials? So for, first off, if, if they're not yearling bulls and they've been working before, thinking something odd is going on here. Yeah, for that many of them, too. Like, it's a, a gut check when you get that phone call because you're like, I got no clue. Yeah. Like, that is not something that we see very often at all. Well, and the times that, the times that I think about bulls and, and with having this many – Severe weather stress comes to mind. So com- coming through a really hard winter, if we've had a really cold winter and we're getting ready to start breeding soon after that, it, but the heat of summer, I don't know that I've seen it knock it back quite that much, but depends on, on where we are. But it, it, this would be higher than even I would expect with severe weather stress, unless we had something like frostbite on the testicles, which, w- which would certainly cause it. Is there anything else on your differential list? No, and the, I mean, the... That's about the only thing I would have come up with is cold weather stress, especially. But this was in like these were bulls getting ready for the fall breeding herd. So this is August. This is late summer. Yeah, and yeah. yeah so. It's like I just I had nothing to go on. Yeah. The the other thing that I, that I would I guess maybe put on the list if we had seen, but I would expect any of the infectious diseases uh, that would cause severe fever. So if we had pneumonia go through, which would be odd in mature bulls. But it would, you'd see some clinical signs, right? Yeah. If we had anything run through them where we're having severe disease, I would expect to see some clinical signs because a really high fever could cause poor semen quality, could cause us to have issues. But with a really high fever, I would expect to see some signs. But maybe, maybe not because these bulls were out on pasture and it was pre-breeding season, so and nobody watches preseason games, so they're out there in preseason, and, and maybe that's a possibility. So where where do you start on this as a veterinarian? When you're there doing the semen evaluation, I think you need to start. You know, when you're as you're going through, that's not a comfortable scenario, right? When you're starting to fail multiple bulls in a row, especially these two, three, four year old bulls. Um, you need to start looking at like what else is going on here because that's not something you're normally going to run into. No, that's right. And, and part of the breeding soundness exam is we're doing a physical exam. We're looking at the size and shape of the testicles. We're palpating to feel the vesicular glands. And then we're looking at the semen motility and morphology. We should and be looking at feet and that's confirmation and hoof quality at that point too while they're standing there. Yeah, absolutely. And and what what was failing? So when I say about half the bulls 
failed the BSE. I should be more specific and say what they were actually failing on was the semen evaluation, right? So er everything else that they were at least passing, and this is pass-fail exam, they were passing, but failing on the semen evaluation. Was there anything specifically that they saw? No, and I don't, I, if I recall, I think it was a motility problem, but don't quote me, which I guess that's probably could play a pretty big role in your differential list at that point, but I, it was a motility thing. There were a few bulls that had some lameness issues, not necessarily that they could see physically on the hoofs themselves, but as they're moving those bulls to try to get them into the chute, they did notice some lameness associated with some of those. I don't want to startle you, but we are quoting you because we're actually recording this. Oh, that's a good okay. point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're, we're not sure if it was, but it was, but it was for sure the semen that they were going on and, and a few of them lame, but uh, honestly, tw 25 bulls housed together in the same pasture, a couple of them lame surprises me zero. Right. You should have some of that. Yeah. So you'll have some of that. So the, then we've got to figure out what's at the bottom of this, but they didn't see any signs of infectious disease, contagious disease, didn't see any signs of uh, uh, other than a couple of those lame bulls. So now we're starting to think about, is it something weird? And when I say, is it something weird? Sometimes that's followed by m maybe minerals, maybe uh, imbalance in something that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Is that a common thought? Yeah, I think that's a, at least a common thought process. And we did leave out an important point. So when these the veterinarian's palpating these bulls, he did notice some pretty severe tail sloughing in a large percentage. I don't remember the exact percentage, but more than two-thirds of these bulls had lost. And it's a significant. If you look at the pictures, there's probably two-thirds of the tail missing in a lot of these bulls. And it doesn't line up perfect with the ones that failed the BSE and the ones that had their tail sloughed. But concurrent issues at the same time was at least worth noting. Okay, so then that's getting odd. And when you're saying tail sloughing, we're not talking about losing the switch. We're talking about they've actually lost the end of the tail. They've lost two thirds of the vertebrae of the tail. Okay, so now I'm starting to think about things that would cause vasoconstriction. Yeah, or which is there anything frostbite else? is gonna pop into your brain, but again, it's August. But it's August, so it's, I think frostbite's low on the list unless we're in the Southern Hemisphere, which we're yeah, not. Which we're not, case. yeah, luckily. Okay. So now what, what type of things do we want to start looking for here? So for me, when you've got apparent vasoconstriction peripherally, you've got some lameness associated with that. There's a few things that come to mind, you know, fescue, ergot, that relationship somewhere in there with the, those ergot alkaloids or peripheral vasoconstrictors. Um, and then with the lameness, you know, this, uh, these bulls are in a high selenium area, so that's always something, you know, chronic selenosis can cause some vertical, not vertical, horizontal hoof cracking and some lameness issues associated with that, not necessarily the tail sloughing. Uh, but there's at least some things that we need to consider. Now, is there a relationship between high selenium and the ergot do they are they synergistic or is it maybe just two things happen at once is that something you're concerned about i there's probably not a relationship it would just be coincidental that they happen to be in the same area so selenium is going to come from the soil predominantly and that's going to be driven geographically at least in a forage setting you know for feeding these animals loose mineral then you got another source there but um, from a forage perspective, it's just going to be related to whatever soil they're growing in. Okay. And so when we talk, let's talk a little selenium, because in this case, we have such a narrow window for selenium before we have low selenium, or we could have too high and too high. 
Would there be any other clinical signs I'd expect to see besides those hoof cracks? Yeah, so selenium, at least on the, the chronic selenium poisoning, is very different than the acute version of the disease. The chronic form, selenium is actually going to s- substitute for sulfur in keratinized tissue. And so you think of hair and hoof, at least I do. And so you could get some, you know, you'll see, especially in horses, they'll, they'll break off their mane and tail hairs, and so their tails will look short. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable to, to expect that in a, a cattle scenario where the tail switch may break off, but I wouldn't expect them to lose actual vertebrae. And you can get some lameness with that. You know, those cracks get in there, you get infections, and and you will get some lameness associated with those. And acute selenium toxicosis, we're thinking heart damage. Yeah, cardiovascular collapse, yeah. Yeah. So the selenium, the process here, if I'm thinking about it, that that is going to be from the soil that goes into the forage that is then grazed, and it's very specific by region of the country whether or not you have high selenium in your area. Is that fair? Yep. So is there a way for me to know, other than it's a local, regional thing, if, if I want to test if I have high selenium or not? And are there areas of the country where you'd say, bad, don't worry about it, it's not that? Yeah, so I honestly will rely on the United States Geological Survey puts out these maps, and it goes county by county, and they've got a sampling strategy per county where they will measure selenium in soil. And they put it's basically a heat map. And the darker the color, the higher the selenium. And so there's certain areas of the country, you know, I'm thinking of central to southern South Dakota. We've got kind of a pocket in northwest Kansas. Um, There's certain areas of the country that just blow up on that map. And then there's others where you expect basically none. You know, the sand hills in Nebraska have very, very little selenium in there. And so you learn that, at least I do in this position over time. Uh, But you would rely on historical knowledge within your own area. And then if you want to do some testing, for selenium, whole blood's actually really good. And so we can take a whole blood sample, which means you got to put it in a purple top tube, submit that, and we can get a pretty good idea in selenium status just with that, if that's all you're looking for is selenium. So in this case, and let's follow that selenium trail. So you submitted whole blood samples on these bulls. What'd you find? Uh, the, it was within the published normal ranges that we used on, it was quite a few of them, nine or 10 different bulls. Okay. So the other thing that we talked about was with the tail sloughing, and now I'm going to go back to the lameness that we hadn't had any hoof sloughing at this point, but I'm starting to be concerned that those two are connected and maybe tied to peripheral vasoconstriction. And, and you mentioned ergots. Any other things on your differential list at that point? Not from a, you know, in the summertime for me. I mean, that's it. I guess that's where I would stick it until I could prove it otherwise. Okay. And now if I make the tie between tail sloughing and lameness, can I make the third leg of that tie back to failed fertility? Is there any evidence out there that would tell us that bulls are less fertile if, they, if they're exposed to ergots? Because we had semen. Yeah, so that's – you would think that, right? Do you think, you know, t- intuitively if you've got some sort of peripheral vasoconstriction, I could see that causing some constriction to the – to the testicles themselves and causing some problems that way. There is some pretty recent work out of Saskatchewan that shows that there were no effects on the normal parameters of a semen evaluation. Um, So, you know, it looks like there's probably not that big of an effect, but um, when you look at that paper, the concentrations that they, you know, it was a controlled trial, so they were feeding two different concentrations in the ration, and the numbers they were using were lower than, I'm gonna give it away, we detected quite a bit in the forage samples of this case. 
and the concentrations in that publication were quite a bit less than what we found, um, at least in, in the forage of this, this specific case. That's the, that's the tricky part with ergot is we're, we're lumping some compounds there together. They're not all the same when we say ergots, right? Yeah, so we're, we're looping, lumping about seven or eight different, they're called ergot alkaloids or ergopeptines, whatever you want to call them. Um, and they, when we loop all those together, there's probably some differences in sensitivity to each of those different compounds and the, the percentage of each of those compounds to the total. So you're just getting an, an added total number at the end. You're getting a total ergot alkaloid concentration. That's not the only number you need. You know, there's, there's differences within that. Differences within there. And you mentioned the concentration and the concentration is, uh, can be highly variable. So it, it does make sense that you could have peripheral vasoconstriction, which would greatly impact semen quality. But the one paper that's out there tested at a lower level than found in this case didn't, didn't show that. So we, we've already kind of mentioned you found a pretty high level of ergots in this case. I'm going to back up a step and say, is this a, when I want to look for ergots, do I send in an animal-based sample, blood, tissue, something like that, or do I send in a feed-based sample based on what they were eating? That is a loaded question. Okay. So I guess I'll work through it this way. So there are animal-based assays, and it is urine. So it is urinary alkaloids that you can measure. There's one lab in the country that does it, and it is just going to give you it's actually a metabolite of all of those. And so it's an indirect marker per se. The issue with that is the half-life of these compounds is pretty short. Like we're, you know, in 48 hours, you're probably not gonna be detected if you've removed them from that setting. And so it's a very short half-life and it's really hard to do that testing. Again, there's one lab in the country that does it. And so a lot of times what we're relying on is forage sampling. That brings into its own challenges as those animals eat that forage, that sample disappears. And so what you're testing is what they haven't eaten yet. And so, you know, there's a little bit is of a it, Is it representative or yeah, not? You do the best you can, but it's, it's not, right, because yeah. they haven't eaten it yet. Well, and if we go into areas where they've been selective, I mean, the best case scenario, you could go into the same field that they're in, but a spot they haven't been turned into yet or an area. And even then, when I take a forage sample, my forage sample may be to throw a ring on the ground and cut a bunch of it off, which is not how cattle graze. No. Right? Especially in a mixed pasture. What, what kind of pastures were they grazing in this scenario? I think this was mainly rye. You know, really anything, any grass that puts on a fairly big seed head can become ergotized. So, you know, that's maybe worth a discussion. Ergot just, reply, or just implies that there was fungal infection of a seed head by Claviceps purpura. It replaces the seed itself with fungal bodies called sclerotia. The sclerosia are the one, is what produces the ergot alkaloids. And so really any of those grasses that put on a big seed head at the top can become ergotized. So is it, the toxic part is not the fungus. It's what the fungus produces, right. is it's what you're the, saying. It's the, a compound produced by the sclerotial bodies of the fungus. So if I go out and I check, the, is this something I can see visually? Can I go look at it and say, oh yeah, this has got ergot and this doesn't? Yeah, actually you can. So this is one where if you go out, it, it looks like wild rice typically. So if you um, just think of a wheat, you know, the seed head of wheat, and then you'll have a longer misshaped, typically they're pretty black in color, sclerotial body in there. And you can see that. And if you go out in the pasture, especially when that grass has gone to seed, 
you know, it's not going to be the complete seed head, but you'll have a few of those that have been replaced by a fungal body like that, and you can see it grossly. Is uh, is this something that growing conditions, weather conditions play a big role, or could this happen any year? So, yeah, I mean, it's growing. So we typically we think it's more cool growing conditions, cooler than normal per se. Um, it's going to, there's going to be a lot of reliance on water availability and fertilization. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that are going to drive that. Um, and we certainly don't see it every year, year to year. And a lot of it, I think, depends on when those animals are turned into that particular pasture. So if they're able to graze a lot of that grass down before it goes to seed, you know, we typically should expect less of a problem. The same thing goes for fescue management. You know, a lot of times, rather than letting fescue go to seed, you'll mow it to prevent that because that's where everything concentrates in the seed head. So if we prevent that formation, we should in theory reduce our exposure. Yeah. And that's just what I was going to ask is so in fescue, often we talk about endophyte with infected fescue, which it's going to be there year in, year out. You're going to have it. If you've got endophyte infected fescue concentrates in the seed heads, but a little bit different than the ergot or but similar clinical signs, are there, are there other differences I should be aware of between if I'm used to dealing with fescue, can I apply all those same principles to ergot, or do I need to think a little bit differently? Yeah, they go hand in hand, I think. I mean, it's, there's a variation in the concentration over time with fescue on when those compounds are the highest and lowest. Um, and, you know, it's a management disease at that point. The same thing would apply to these. You just don't let the grass go to seed. But the, those compounds were in the same family. Yeah. The difference, the difference being with the endophyte and fescue, I can't, I can't go out and actually see it. Yeah. That, that fungus, I mean, it's an endophy, endophytic fungus, which means endo inside, it lives inside the grass. Yeah. And so you can't grossly see it where claviceps, the, you can see the sclerotial bodies. So in this case, you decided to send in a forage sample. We've kind of spoiled the ending here. How do you sample? What are, what are the things I want to get? Do I want to get the seed heads and if i can see it do i need to send it in or do i just go yeah we've got ergot that's this I, it's worth testing and sampling strategies is, are always an issue I, you know in a small pasture like this one if you draw a line you know diag say it's a square draw a line diagonally from it and take you know a few samples on either side of that line try to get an idea you i mean you can see the plants around there that these cattle had grazed so if they are not grazing it all the way down to the ground there's no reason for you to sample all the way down to the ground just do the best you can to get a representative sample of what they have appeared to be eating. Um, you can send, there's a lot of labs that'll do ergot alkaloid analysis. We have a panel here that we do it. Um, and, you know, this is something that's a problem at pretty low concentrations. Um, so it's, you know, these methods are pretty sensitive. And again, you're going to look at a total dietary inclusion in the end. And so what did you, what did you find? What level did you find in these samples? So these were well over, you know, they were in the three, four, five part per million range which is, you know, 100 part per billion, we start getting worried about problems, especially in horses. So they're the ultimate sensitive species. Cattle can probably handle quite a bit more than that, you know, in the multiple hundreds of part per billion. Uh, but when we start getting up to the part per million range, then, you know, I, at least in this case, it seems like we've got a, a pretty substantial problem. So start to get toxic at parts per million. Yeah, well, part per billion. So it would be 0.1 part per million. So 0.1 part per million is where we'd expect to start running into some issues. And these were like 3 to 4.0 part per million. So exponentially yeah, so higher. Multiples of 10 higher. Yeah. So so huge load there with the ergot. And, and what other 
now that I know I've got ergot, I'm going to go back to my clinical signs. Is there anything else maybe I should be looking for or everything associated with peripheral vasoconstriction? So the hoof, the hoof issues, the tail sloughing, uh, we often talk maybe ears or things like that. Sometimes you'll see this in the winter if it's not maybe not as severe toxic load, but you have the environmental uh, on top of that. But anything else I should be looking for? Yeah, I mean, anything that affects the thermal regulation, I think you could increase some decreased weight gains. You know, you're not necessarily targeting weight gain on bulls. They did notice some loss of condition on some of these, which could be related to feet that hurt, right? They're not going to spend a ton of time on their feet grazing like they should. And so there's some of those indirect measures, I think, that you could expect. And then when it gets cold, especially, who knows what's going to happen? I, I mean, it's worth pulling them off, and they would be able to excrete those and hopefully be able to handle the cold challenge better. Yeah. So, and you mentioned the paper earlier that showed that there wasn't a big impact on fertility. However, they were at much lower levels. And as you and I have talked before, you've told me the the level between toxin or not is all about dose. And in this case, you had a much, much higher dose than what was tested in that paper. That paper, I think, was right at two part per million, but we were three, four, five, so we were double, right? And then who knows, you know, we I haven't compared the breakdown of the different compounds in there. You know, maybe there's ergovaline, ergocryptine, ergocrystine. Maybe the the percentages of each of those compounds within there is driving some of this. We just don't know. Yeah, gotcha. And so I don't know that we've got a causation with the semen challenges, but there's a correlation at least at minimum. A correlation there. And didn't find anything else on these bulls. And, And certainly could also be related to after effects, right? Like you said, feet hurt, not grazing, losing weight, which also affects semen quality, right? You get a negative energy balance all of those things can add up. So now we've identified at least a strong correlation. We're going to get them out of that pasture, one. But now what do I do? Is there any, are, are there any treatments for this ergot toxicosis? Can I treat those individuals if I want to try to salvage some of those bulls? What do I do with the ones that failed? Yeah, so I don't think economically there's probably, I mean, there's on the horse side there are some therapies, but um, for cattle they're going to excrete that compound fairly quickly once you get it out of there it's going to be gone and then i think you just give them you know give them a couple months and try the semen tests again i should i need to follow up and just see if anybody did that so this was one out of actually a string of cases we had in the northern part of the country last august um, so i'm thinking of three or four different cases very similar histories very similar clinical signs um, and so i mean it, again it seems like it's a year-to-year variation whatever reason last year in the northern states at least seemed like we had more problems than usual so I've seen, and we've compared contrast to this with endophyte and fescue, I've seen people talk about endophyte kind of having a washout period of anywhere three to six weeks as you, as you bring cattle in. And I think part of that is based on maybe not the true washout period, but when we see them shed off that old fuzzy coat and, and go to the next stage, which doesn't mean they still had toxin in their system. But do you have a feel for how long does it take to kind of work this out of their system as those bulls? I would. I'm, I think you just give it. You know, pretend they're whatever semen they've made today is going to be bad, and give them that developmental time before you check them again. So 45, 60 days. Yeah. Let them let them make some new semen and go again. And palliative therapy for some of the other. Yeah, pain control if you got some bad feet. There's probably not much you're going to do with the tails. And so this case was even weird. We had a couple of these bulls died, and so on. The, you know, we don't need to go in necropsy histopath. It looked like septicemia, and the thought process was that ulcerated abscess tail that had sloughed 
had cut a spread and gone systemic on a, a couple good, of them. Good way to get infection into the yeah, body, which right? You wouldn't, ex- you know, I wouldn't expect that on an adult bull. So that was a little bit unique with this one. So basically, pre- prevention. And then, so we talked about follow up, and then if they come back to service long term, would have a good prognosis, right? As long as long as their hooves do well and the semen comes back online, there's no long lasting impacts of the ergot. We should be fine. Uh, beyond those tissues and prevention wise we're thinking about managing to minimize ergot exposure toxicosis to prevent this in the future is anything else prevention wise no i mean the main thing is just keeping the grass from going to seed because that's where the problem's at so if you got to you know turn cattle in earlier you got to do more rotational stuff where they you know there's management practices to get around some of that and the nice thing about the ergot is you can visually evaluate. You can visually right, see compared it. Compared yeah. to our fight. So we appreciate this this case uh, and many of the other Tox Talk cases have been funded by a veterinary services grant that Dr. Fritz has been a part of, as well as Dr. Ensley, Dr. Larson here at K-State. That program has helped provide both these podcasts and some of the case outlines resources that we put up on the Beef Cattle Institute Toxicology website. So we appreciate the support of that grant. Scott, I appreciate you being here and coming up with these good cases for us. Yep, thanks for having me.